Good morning. The title of our message is The Sixth Trumpet, and our text is, of course, Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. I'd like to begin with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He was a 19th century British pastor, 1834 to 1892. He said, quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of the master of all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is the God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne in whom we trust. End of quote. Sovereignty, supreme power, and authority. Our God has both. We see four angels in this text that were placed in strategic positions. It's a forceful reminder that God is not taken by surprise by any event. Nothing will proceed without his own choice of time. But this does not mean that it eliminates human freedom of action. And I'll tell you now, there is a lot of ink spilt upon the sovereignty of God and the free choice of man. But sovereignty does underscore the purposes and providences of God. All the forces of history are under the sovereign control of God. And it's comforting to those who have entrusted themselves to Christ. It's hope and encouragement to the Christian community. Then... And now, see, God will vindicate his cause, and he will judge the enemies of righteousness. And we're going through the wrath and the judgment of God in the book of Revelation. He is going to vindicate, and he will judge. It reminds you of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 9. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Let us, do, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We know that. If you've been around here on this earth for any amount of time, you will reap what you sow. Your sin will find you out. And we're reading about God judging the enemies of righteousness. Look at verse 13. The six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel. Now, most English translations will say a voice, but there's no indefinite articles in Keon Greek the Greek in which the Bible is written, a little different than modern Greek if we go to Greece today. What I mean by indefinite article, 
a plant, a pew, a clock, a person. Not defining anything, but just saying a, a, a. There's no such thing in the biblical Greek. It's always the. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, there is no way you can take that and he's saying, I am a way, I am possibly the life. No, he's making a definite statement that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this voice, I wonder if it's the voice of God, but I remember the location of the altar. And there it is. That's an artist's rendition of the altar of incense, the golden altar that was sit in the holy place. Behind it is a depiction of the veil. Behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. And they would put hot coals from the altar of sacrifice and then put incense on top of it. It would burn and make smoke, representing the prayers of God. I mean, prayers of the saints going before God. But that is a rendition of it. The four horns of most of the sacrifice, um, altars, they would use those to tie down the sacrifice. But that's, now remember, that's an artist's rendition. But this will give you an idea of what that may look like. Now, when that voice that commands the sixth angel to release the four angels, who is it? Well, it's possibly the angel priest in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, that presented the prayer of the saints of God. Could be possibly the prayers themselves. They're a unified concern for vindication. But one thing is for certain. A fundamental truth that we've learned about in these last few weeks concerning prayer. The prayers of God's people always take an active role. Are you concerned about our country? That was a rhetorical question. Are you concerned about our leadership in government? Are you concerned about our state? Are you concerned about the condition of the world? Are you concerned about the loss? And when's the last time that we got down and we wept before God? After reading what we've read so far, I'm about to read. If we have the love of Christ in us, how can we do nothing else than to fall down and weep before God and ask Him to sin? A great awakening. I've read about the great awakenings. People coming to faith in Christ. Do you believe revival can still happen? Do we believe in the power of the Word? Do we believe in the power of God? We must continue to seek the face of God. What did this voice say? Look in verse 14. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now some suggest a connection with the four restraining angels back in chapter 7, verse 1. Now those angels back in chapter 7, they were stationed at the four corners of the earth, if you recall. And they were holding back the four winds of the earth. But these four are released, as we'll see in a moment, to kill the third of mankind. Therefore, some see these as demonic because they have been bound and chained. The ones in chapter 7, verse 1, were standing, ready to act on part of God. Rather, these are waiting to exercise destructive power upon their release. And still others say they're just angels as instruments of God's judgment. 
Since they appear to be restraining an onslaught of an army, they're best seen as restraining angels. I'm not, if you want to know what view I particularly hold, I'll let you know. But don't miss the forest for the trees of this text. It talks about the river Euphrates, and there's a picture coming up. There it is. Euphrates is to your left as you look at it, and the Tigris is to your right. This modern-day map comes through Syria and Iraq. It makes up with the Tigris down towards the bottom, and then they both flow into the Persian Gulf. That river is 1,740 miles long. As you can see, it winds across the Middle East, and it's approximately 300 miles east of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be over here somewhere, more to your left. Of, I couldn't find a map that did it justice to see that, but just to give you an idea where this river is. It marked the boundary between Israel and her chief enemies. It also marked the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. It's one of the rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 through 14. Now a river flowed out of Eden to the water, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four. The name of the first is Pishon. The name of the second river is Gion. And the name of the third river is Tigris. And the fourth river is Euphrates. This river is also mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. It's also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, and describing the Assyrian invaders. Many of the terrible invasions of Palestine came across this river, the Assyrians, the Babylons, and the Persians. And during the time of the Roman Empire... Parthian warriors on the other side defeated their Armin Romi in both 53 B.C. and 62 A.D. By the way, the war between Romi and Parthian lasted from 66 B.C. to 217 A.D., a long time of war. Why bring that all up to you? Because in the mind of the original audience, they knew about the Euphrates River. They knew the history of it. And when they say these angels were bound there, all this kind of bad stuff would come back to their minds. Oh. The Euphrates River, that's a famous river. It's something like if we say the Mississippi River. Most all Americans, maybe I shouldn't say this, most all Americans know where the Mississippi River is. If you live east of the Mississippi or you live west of the Mississippi. So they will understand this, and that's where they're at. Looking back in verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released. These four angels have been kept ready for the specific moment. Those three words, have been prepared, comes from a Greek verb that's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense gives the idea of existing in a state of readiness. They have been there for all time, standing there, waiting for this specific moment to happen. The exact moment that was decreed by God. What were they going to do? Look back in verse 15. So they would kill a third of mankind. The human race. People. Let that sink in for just a moment. A third of people. Now the first question is, is this in addition to the sealed judgments? And to the first trumpets, which is part of a broader question involving whether the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath later are to be understood as sequential 
overlapping one another or simply enlargements depicting the extent of the tribulation in different kinds of pictures. I would say there does seem to be a sequence to the judgments and consequently, therefore, the third of mankind that loses their life in this plague is in addition to those who have already lost their lives. Now, you may check me on this. I did this back on Wednesday, Thursday, got these. But just to kind of put it, we can put our minds around it. That's more than the accumulated deaths of all the wars that were fought in the 20th century. The world's population, as of August this year, they're saying 7.79 billion. In November, it's expected to reach 8 billion. So a third of that, if I did my wrath, I mean wrath, if I did my math properly, over 2 billion people would be killed in this moment. That's given if the population stays at 8 billion people. 2 billion people gone. Now let's bring it closer to home. That could be some of our friends, our neighbors, even some of our own loved ones. Look what he says in verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. Now to put it in context of John's day, the Roman army in the first century was composed of approximately 25 to 30 legions. Each, each legion consisted of approximately 4,000 to 6,000 men. That means 25 legions of the Roman army would be anywhere from 100,000 to 150,000 men, and 30 legions would be 120 to 180 men. Now, these numbers would include cavalry and infantry. They also had an auxiliary army of comparable size. And I would dare say that John, the biggest army he knew about in his day, was probably the Roman Empire. Those numbers I just spit out, I want you to consider those numbers as compared to the 200 million. And these are just cavalry that he mentions here. And we're looking at that many, it's hard to tell, but you look back in 16, he's told. Look, he says, I heard the number of them. So he saw a large, but someone told him the exact number of it. 200 million. Like chariots, cavalry was greatly feared, instruments of war in the ancient world. Now, let's put it in today's context. You ready for your information here? The United States Armed Forces, that's all four branches. Active. 1,376,658, the reserve, 799,500. So our whole fighting force here at home is not even 2 million strong. And by the way, a budget for 2022, $782 billion. Even the United States Armed Forces don't have as many as we just read about in the text. He says the riders, back in verse 17, had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. The color of fire, you may read fiery red in the Holman Christian or the NIV or the New Living. Hyacinth blue or dark blue. So the breastplates match what proceeds out of the horse's mouth. 
Look back in verse 17. Their heads are, the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. You know what brimstone is? Burning sulfur. It contains the gas sulfur dioxide. You can mix it with moisture on plants to form an acid that will damage the leaves of plants. Breathing it, of course, can be very harmful, if not fatal to human beings. And I never smelled it myself. I never hope I have to, but I've been told it smells like rotten eggs. And the third, in verse 18, of mankind was killed by these plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads. That's the description that John gives us of who, are reading, who are riding these horses. That tails are like serpents could be emphasizing the demonic origins of the horses, because in chapter 12, verse 9 of Revelation, the devil is designated the serpent of old. And throughout antiquity, snakes and serpents were closely associated. And if you go back to Genesis 19:24, this scene is reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, the first woe we read about with the locusts just brought torment. This second woe is bringing death. Could you imagine waking up and hearing the news, two billion people have been killed? Can we wrap our minds around that? This description of this army defy any known military contingencies. This is not only true of the ancient world, but also the modern world. And the attempts to specifically identify the horses as tanks, singing out forth fire with some sort of automatic weaponry, is a little far-fetched, in my opinion, to say the least. Because God could not conceive of modern weaponry like a tank. Therefore, I don't think he's describing such objects. And may I go a step further, it's hardly wise exegetically to assign such specifics to an ancient text. The better approach is to grasp the nature of the warning and to grasp the original essence of the conflict. In other words, we can discuss about the horses and what they were like and what some of the smell like, that's fine, but let's not miss the point of the text. People die as a judgment of God because God is going to deal with sin one way or the other. Don't get wrapped. I mean, it's good to have those discussions. And a lot of people, a lot smarter than me, that know the Greek and Hebrew a lot better than I do, I can, I can direct you about five or six textbooks if you want and read all day long. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't miss the point. Now, verse 20 and 21, I've mentioned this quite a bit the last few weeks, but let's take a look at this once again. The rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. That's the most astonishing thing we read in our text this morning. That's more astonishing than this 200 million army. One would expect a massive turn of repentance to God. You would think. And there's a sequence to the judgments. A third of mankind is killed in addition to those who already died. Back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 22, Jesus speaking, 
For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world unto now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Does, I mean, nod your head or raise your hand. Give me some time. Does this shock you that no one repented? I mean, seriously. And bear with me, I, I'm just thinking out loud. When this event happens, it will happen. And those people that were killed, I wonder if they ever sat in a church service or the gospels ever shared with them. And they may have heard the same message and they've been warned about it, but yet they do not repent. But it goes further, does it? Look back in verse 20. Did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons, the idols of gold, of silver, and of brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. (laughs) These idols did not possess any divine characteristics, but they even lacked human abilities, such as hearing, and walking, and seeing. In verse 21, look what it says. They had no repentance for their murders. They're sorceries. They're moralities. That's the Greek word pornea, where we get our, Greek, our English word porn from. But our word pornea is not just sexual immorality like adultery. It covers a whole spectrum of that, including lust. If you want to do an interesting study in a Greek word one time, look at that word pornea. They didn't repent of that or their thefts. Despite all the upheavals, the tragedies, and the overwhelming loss of life, they continue to reject the one true God. They rather favor gods of their own manufacturing. Anytime we don't like what the Bible says, and we, we say, well, God didn't really mean that, or God's not really like that, we are guilty of manufacturing a God to our own understanding. That, ladies and gentlemen, is idolatry. what it is even worse worshiping the demonic spirits that enslave them that is delusion of sin that's what will do to you the outpouring of God's wrath during the tribulation point out at least two critical important things we should consider Even the threat of imminent judgment of God is not an ultimate deterrent even when one sees the penalty for his or her actions. Psychologists would call that addiction. You continue the same behavior knowing what's going to happen, but yet you still do it anyway. You can also say that's a definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. They are determined to continue the practice of evil that brought judgment. And the justification for the judgments of God is found because he has given every every conceivable warning of what it means to be a recipient of divine judgment. However, they still continue in their iniquity, their wickedness, and sin. God has given every warning he possibly can, and yet they still do it. See, here's the problem. 
If I was to take a microphone around here today and we started confessing some things, all of us have pet sins and things that we struggle with. And in my own experience, I've noticed the things I struggle with and continue to struggle with because I have not turned it over to God yet. I'm trying to fight it on my own ability, my own understanding, my own comprehension. I can't do that. I can only win over sin and Satan with the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to win. You have problems and you think there's no way to get through it or over it, you're right. When are you going to continue to do the same thing over and over again knowing what's going to happen? Let go of your pride and humble yourself before God. That's what's needed. Because if he does not act, if God does not act, he demonstrates that he is powerless in the face of evil. What the history of the world and the Bible have demonstrated to me, God will vindicate, he will judge, but God, because of his grace and his mercy and his patience, his long-suffering is the only thing keeping him from making this happen right now. He's waiting for more people to come. And this salvation, this new walk, this new life that you're given, it's not out in the future somewhere. It can start here and now. But you have to come to him. You have to let go. Let me just ask you a question. How much control do you have anyway? Really? I believe in going to the doctor, taking medication for things. But how much control do you really have? We do not know when all this is going to happen. Jesus said he didn't know. He said the angels don't know. Only God the Father knows. And there's another little event that no one in this room knows about when it's going to happen. That's the time of your own physical death. Just because I'm younger than some of you in this room doesn't mean I have more time. And just because I'm older doesn't mean I have shorter time. Over the 20-something years of ministry, I've been to many funerals of both the old and the young alike. We're just one heartbeat, one breath away from eternity. Now, it's important to remember, God's people are protected during this time. We go back to verse 4, the ones that had the seals on their forehead. But then that goes back to what you think about the rapture, but happens before the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation. But the thing I'm sure of, the Bible tells me nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. All the schemes of man and no power of hell can take you out of his hands. We, as believers... As saints, and also the unbelievers, we, we have to realize what really is at stake. Because idolatry in our society is not as obvious as it was back in John's day. We don't call it idolatry, we call it different things. 
We may use a good word like I'm passionate about this or I'm passionate about that. Whatever you place before God in your life, that's an idol. And you're robbing God. That's not my words, that's the words of the Bible. It could be money, it could be possessions, it could be power, it could be pleasure, it could be success, it could be fame. Because those who buy into a secular culture and its ways are headed for divine judgment. There's still a chance to repent. That's the good news. We talk about the gospel being good news. This, that statement alone bears the question, well, what's the bad news? Well, the bad news, God's coming back. He's going to judge sin, period, across the board. In our society, what I see happening a lot is we want to justify ourselves by the actions or inactions of somebody else. Well, I'm better than people who go to church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. You think that's going to stand before God one day when you're looking at them? Because you have to answer for yourself. Period. End of sentence. That's it. I can't justify myself by the actions or inactions of somebody else. I have to look at Scripture, what God has told me. That has to be how I look at my actions and what I do and what I say. See, I don't come up with a, I should never come up with the rules or ethics of behavior and then run to the Bible and find proof text to, to justify myself. No, I go to the Bible first. What's the Bible say about adultery? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Pretty straightforward. Jesus qualified that though, didn't he? You've heard it said, he, he said that to a bunch of people back the first day. He said, you heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Oh, that hurts. And I'm guilty of that, I'll be honest. That's why I desperately need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. The invitation. It's not only for those coming to Christ for the first time, it is open for everybody. Now, we don't refer to this as an altar. Some people say come with the altar. The reason we call it that, we don't have a sacrifice up here. But the Bible says we need to present ourselves as living sacrifices. So you, you come up here as a way of saying, God, here it all is. When's the last time that you prayed for anybody. You wept for the lost. Perhaps you're running from something. God's calling you. Calling you to a deeper relationship to him. Calling you some type of ministry. This is going to happen. This is a warning text. But it has to be your decision can be your mama's or your daddy's, brother or your sister, whoever. It has to be yours. And it has to be coming from your heart. It's not about what you say, but where it's coming from. Because Jesus said, what comes out of your mouth will reveal what's in your heart. What say you?
what are you going to do with this information now? Are we just going to walk out and say, oh, well, or are we going to do something about it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who is not sure of their eternal destination, this will be the hour and the day they'll make sure. For those who are Christians, dear God, I know that you are calling them into a deeper relationship with you. I know all of us have things that we struggle with. Father, I get so tired. We need you. We desperately need you. We can't do this alone. Reach down your arms of love and mercy and grace and embrace them. Father, let them know how much you love them, how much you care about them. Father, may we be obedient, obedient to your, to your words. Nonetheless, your will be done, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.